Well, I'm always amazed at how the Spirit of God orchestrates our worship services, and Chris and I really don't talk a whole lot about uh, the songs that he chooses to play and uh, the, the sermons I choose to preach, but they always seem to, to mesh. I guess we're all coming from the same book, so uh, that's probably why. But uh, anyway, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And regardless of where you stand when it comes to politics, um, I think we've all witnessed a fascinating phenomenon in both political parties during the latest presidential primaries, because we've seen two leaders, a Republican and a Democrat, have unexpectedly captured really the attention of a large portion of our country. And by capitalizing on people's fears and frustrations, they have developed a sort of cult following, if you will. Uh, A year ago, I don't think anyone really expected either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump to be a serious contender for the presidency. And yet, each of them, in their own way, have gained a sort of Pied Piper popularity by promising solutions to the problems facing our country and there are a whole lot of Americans who really want them to be the leader of our nation. And the rapid rise and widespread appeal of Bernie Sanders, and even more so Donald Trump, I think serves as an example of how quickly and how easily it is to secure a national following. When crime is out of control and the economy is faltering and race relations are tense and there's political chaos and there's a a leadership vacuum and people are desperate. The scene is set for a charismatic leader offering hope and claiming to have all the answers to rise to power and take over not just a country, but the entire world. And I would submit to you that what we've been watching play out in our nation's political process is simply a a foretaste of the future rise of a world leader known as the Antichrist. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not claiming that Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump are the Antichrist. I'm just saying they're Antichrist-like in the way they've risen to power so quickly and so um, uh, widely. And whenever you discuss the doctrine of future things or eschatology, as theologians like to call it, you need to address the subject of the Antichrist. Uh, We touched on this last week, and uh, we had a good discussion in our grow group uh, this week about the Antichrist, and it was obvious to me that there is is some confusion in, in some people's minds about who this guy is, the Antichrist. Well... The Antichrist is portrayed in the scriptures as a brilliant, eloquent, influential, evil, deceptive, satanically empowered savior, i.e. Antichrist, the anti-Messiah, if you will, the alternative Messiah, or satanically possessed dictator who will rise to world dominance during the end times and play a central role in the future of Israel. Uh, He will make some kind of treaty with the nation of Israel, which he will eventually break and seek to annihilate them along with all the saints who were alive during the tribulation and try to get the whole world to worship him. You think we're seeing arrogance now in one of our political uh, candidates. Uh, We haven't seen anything yet to the arrogance uh, and the pride of the Antichrist. He will want to be worshipped by the world. Well, the Bible refers to this this tool of Satan, the Antichrist, by several titles. He's referred to as the little horn. We saw that last week in Daniel 7. Uh, He's referred to the man of lawlessness. We're going to see that in just a moment in 2 Thessalonians. And he's also referred to as the beast. Um in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. Last week in Daniel 7, we, we were introduced to the Antichrist, who, by the way, um, this is the first reference to the Antichrist in the Scriptures here in the book of Daniel. And so it seems appropriate that we would take a little time 
a little extra time to, to talk about this, this guy and, and really define who this, uh, who this man is or who, or who he will be. And so he's introduced to us for the first time in Daniel chapter 7 in the form of the little horn uh, that busts out of the ten horns there of the, the, the future revived Roman Empire. Um, we're going to see him again here in Daniel chapter 8 and again in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, next week, the prince who is to come, and that's what he's referred to there uh, in verse 26 of chapter 9. Um, now, beyond the book of Daniel, uh, as I mentioned already, the Antichrist is later described in the book of Second Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. When you think about um, eschatology and where we draw our doctrine of the end times, you should think of uh, four basic passages. You should think of the book of Daniel, particularly the last six chapters. Uh, you should think of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, where Jesus was teaching his disciples about his return there on the Mount of Olives. And then you've got the book of Second Thessalonians, which is very eschatological, has a lot to say about the end times. And then, of course, you've got the book of Revelation. So those are really the four main uh, portions of God's Word, the book of Daniel, Matthew 24 and 25, 2 Thessalonians, and the book of Revelation. That's where we uh, develop our doctrine uh, of future things, or our doctrine of the end times. And so I want to invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians just for a moment, um, where we can get a little better picture of this man, this individual known as the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, again, the context here, <coughs> excuse me, is... Uh, Paul is writing to these Christians in Thessalonica who had received some misinformation, um, some false teaching, that somehow they had missed the rapture and they were now living uh, through the tribulation. In fact, they had missed the return of Christ somehow. And so they were living uh, under this uh, fear uh, of having missed uh, the return of Christ. And so Paul wanted to write and correct um, their thinking. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says this, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he's saying, hey, I get it. I heard you, you somebody's told you this. In fact, they even maybe implied that this is what I believed or this is what I taught, this was a letter from me. Well, not at all. Notice verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the end of the world, if you will, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. In other words, the falling away of many people away from the truth, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 is probably one of the clearest descriptions of, uh, of the person and the motivation uh, of the Antichrist. He goes on to say, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, this man of lawlessness, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Now, Bible scholars have argued um, about what is that, that one... Um, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Who is that he's referring to? What is the restraining force that's keeping the, the Antichrist at bay? Some would say uh, it's the church. Um, and so as soon as the church is taken away in the rapture, then the man of lawlessness will come to power. Others say it's simply the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the point is, there's something right now holding off the rise of the Antichrist. Verse Eight, then that lawless one will be revealed 
whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they do not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So again, he's, Paul's talking about this lawless one, the Antichrist, um, who will be slayed, killed, destroyed, conquered when Christ returns. But before that happens, uh, he will be satanically empowered there. Uh, he'll, he'll be able to perform all sorts of signs and false wonders. He'll deceive people um, and God will actually send a, dilute, a diluting influence so that people will be duped by this, by this man, that they will embrace him um, as the, 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 the Messiah, if you will, the Savior of the world. Um, and ultimately, it's because they reject the gospel. And so, again, this kind of helps us fill out a little bit who this Antichrist uh, figure will be. Now, we need to turn to Revelation, okay, to add to this um, caricature, if you will. Revelation chapter 13, uh, John fills in the gaps here a little bit, gives us a little bit more uh, color commentary, if you will, on who this man of lawlessness is going to be. And so in Revelation chapter 13... Uh, again, we see some of the same imagery uh, that we see in the book of Daniel. Uh, we see pictures of animals, visions of animals and beasts that represent certain things. But uh, hopefully it will be pretty clear when we read this, Revelation chapter 13. Again, this is all about the Antichrist and the false prophet who will promote the Antichrist. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast, which I saw, (coughs) was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, (coughs) his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Again, who's the dragon? The dragon is Satan, and he's empowering uh, this, this creature, this beast, Um, that we know is the Antichrist. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Interesting what uh, some scholars say, that somehow the Antichrist um, is going to um, try to replicate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe it's through an assassination attempt of some sort, but uh, it'll appear that the, the Antichrist will have been killed, uh, but then he'll be brought back to life. And, uh, and, and this will be something that amazes the whole world and gets them to follow him. That this guy must be real if he comes, he'll be able to come back from the dead. And so you just see this whole idea of the Antichrist, uh, it's, it's the opposite of of Christ. It's everything that Satan will try to make his Christ, the Antichrist, everything that Christ was. And so he'll try to replicate much of what we saw, saw in the, the, the life of Christ. Verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? He's invincible. Um, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months and was was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. And so here we see, as we saw last week, that the Antichrist will be very arrogant, very boastful, and will even blaspheme God in heaven. Uh, ultimately because he wants to replace God. He wants to set himself up as God in Jerusalem and have the world worship him. Verse 8, all who dwell, excuse me, verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And so he will take over the world essentially and he'll destroy uh, Christians, um, All who dwell on the earth will worship him 
everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. In other words, if you're not saved, if you're not one of God's chosen people, um, then you will worship the Antichrist. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. In other words, there will be saints alive at the time during the Great Tribulation, and they will endure, they will persevere uh, through the reign of the Antichrist, who will be out to destroy them. Um, but then notice verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. There it is again, that somehow he's going to uh, try to make it look like he came back from the dead. Um, this second beast performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven so that the earth... Uh, to the earth in the presence of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to reform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. There it is emphasizing uh, this, this coming back to life thing, this resurrection, this false resurrection. Um, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so here is really the, this, this, this false prophet, as he's referred to in Revelation 19. He's the promoter. He's the PR agent, if you will, of the Antichrist. And he's possessed by Satan as well. And he's able to perform all these signs and all these wonders and really trying to get everyone to, to worship and, and, and honor the beast, uh, the Antichrist. Um, Notice what it says here in verse 16. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. So, of course, that's where we get the number 666, the mark of the beast. And so apparently the, the, this, this false prophet will set up some kind of economic system uh, throughout the world, and if you want to buy and sell, if you want to do business, if you want to go to Walmart, if you will, uh, you're going to have to have the currency of the beast, which is his mark, the 666. And again, we don't have time to get into that this morning, what all that could be, what all, how that, all that could play out, what it could look like. Um, there's lots of stuff out there you can find that's just crazy about the mark of the beast. Um, but again, we're trying to stick with just the, the simple and the obvious here um, about this, this, this man called the Antichrist. Now, we have to turn to chapter 19 of Revelation because this is, this is where we see the conclusion or the, the outcome, if you will, of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 well, let's go back to verse 19, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, we have the coming of Christ, this is the return of Christ, and here he comes riding on the, 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 the horse, um, the white horse, along with all of us who are heirs with him and, and who will reign with him, and we will come back for the final battle of Armageddon, and uh, notice what it says in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so you have the Antichrist, <coughs> excuse me, who's rallied all the leaders of the, of the world and their armies, and they assembled together there uh, in the va valley of Megiddo uh, outside of Jerusalem to make war against Jesus Christ and his army. Notice verse 20, and the beast was seized, the Antichrist was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Ding dong, the witch is dead, right? And so that's how the Antichrist ends. That, that's his demise, if you will. So again, with all that 
background in our mind, let's go back now to the book of Daniel, where the Antichrist um, is first introduced to us. And, and here in chapter 8, the Spirit of God, once again through the prophet Daniel, predicted events that have already taken place in history, which provide us with a foretaste of the future. Uh, listen to how one commentator explains this particular chapter. Quote, while this passage is partially about historical kings and kingdoms, it also looks beyond to the ultimate end of time. This is called a double fulfillment, where the near fulfillment of the prophecy foreshadows the far. And we've talked about this uh, at other times whenever we uh, have looked at prophecy and scripture, that you always have to keep in mind this double fulfillment, the near and far fulfillment, the mountain peaks, if you will, where the prophet Daniel was looking out and seeing uh, a mountain peak and saying, okay, there's the, there's the near fulfillment, okay? Uh, and maybe in his mind that was the only fulfillment because we know in Second Peter, Peter said that the writers of the Old Testament were kind of peering into the future to, to try to figure out what in the world these prophecies were all about. Uh, because they knew they were limited in their understanding. And so we who look back on these prophecies can see it much more clearly. So they're looking out and all they see is this mountain, but they get up on top of this mountain and then they realize, oh, there's another mountain out there. And so you always have to keep in mind this double fulfillment uh, concept that, uh, for example, you know, a lot of these prophecies apply to the first coming of Christ, but little did the Old Testament saints know that there was going to be a second coming of Christ, that the Messiah was going to come not just once, but twice. And so we need to keep this double fulfillment in mind, this near fulfillment and this far fulfillment, and we're going to see that play itself out here in Daniel chapter 8. Now, I think it will be easy if we just easier for us if we read this chapter in its entirety uh, and, and just kind of get the big picture here, fly, do a flyover, if you will, before we start taking it apart. And so you, you can basically break up Daniel chapter 8 like you could Daniel chapter 7 into two sections, you have the vision uh, in verses 1 through um, 14, and then you have the interpretation of the vision in verses 15 through 27. So let's read this together. Uh, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was in, when I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself." While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the beast over the surface, coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. This was a unigoat, if you will. Uh, he came up to the ram and had the two that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come along come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven." Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and toward the beautiful land, i.e. Jerusalem or Israel, the land of Canaan. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, 
then the holy place will be properly restored. Now here's the interpretation. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Keep that in mind. That's, where, that's, that's a, a hint. That tips us off that this isn't, just, this isn't just about ancient history. This is about future history, if you will. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Again, another tip there that this is just not about ancient history, um, but it's also about the future and what will happen in the end or during the end times. Verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. (coughs) In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, i.e. Jesus Christ, but he will be broken without human agency. In other words, a a human army or king is not going to conquer him. It will be a heavenly army, a supernatural king. The vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Again, another tip, another hint, right, that this is not just about ancient history. It's about the end times. And so here we have this second vision. And again, simply understood, there's a vision, there's an interpretation. But I want to, for us, for our sake this morning, I want us to look at it um, uh, according to the three images, the three images that, that make up this vision. And so first of all, Daniel saw a mighty ram. Um, and then secondly, he saw a mad goat. And third, he saw a menacing horn. And uh, as we've already seen through the interpretation, that the mighty ram represents Persia or the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, The mad goat represents Alexander the Great, Greece, uh, and how they conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And then this menacing horn is um, twofold in its interpretation. Uh, First of all, it's a man named Antiochus, or as we're going to see, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who was a, a, a true historic character that we're going to learn about. But then also, this is representative of the Antichrist, the Antichrist. And so let's look at these three images one at a time. First of all, uh, this mighty ram. Now, before we look at this, don't, uh, I just want to remind you, and you, you wouldn't be able to tell this from just the English translation that we have in front of us, but uh, Daniel here shifted back to writing in Hebrew uh, from Aramaic. Um, uh, You may have remembered that uh, back in chapter 2, I mentioned that he switched gears. He started writing in in Hebrew, chapter 1 is in Hebrew, but then in chapter 2, he switched to Aramaic. And from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, Uh, He wrote in Aramaic. Uh, Why? Because the focus of this section, Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7, uh, is on the times of the Gentiles. In other words, the focus was no longer um, uh, on the nation of Israel so much as it was on the Gentile nations, the times of the Gentiles. And and, um, 
Again, I think it's interesting to note that this section, this Aramaic section, is bookended by two similar visions, right? The, the vision of the four um, successive Gentile empires uh, through Nebuchadnezzar's statue, right? The four different types of metal, uh, along with um, Daniel's four beasts. We just saw that in Daniel chapter 7. So you got Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's statues, statue vision. You got Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's vision of the four beasts, all of, and, and, and both of them have to do with this, the, the, the rise and fall of these four successive Gentile empires throughout world history. And so that's, this whole section, chapter 2 through 7, is about the times of the Gentiles, which is the period from Nebuchadnezzar's reign to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we are living in the times of the Gentiles, even now. Um, and it's during this time that the nation of Israel is undergoing divine discipline. Her persistent rebellion against God uh, caused him to judge them by allowing uh, Gentile nations to conquer them and to rule over them. And that has been what has happened um, ever since Nebuchadnezzar um, conquered Jerusalem. And they've been living under foreign rule ever since. Now, now we know, uh, ever since 1948... They're their own nation now, and so we're seeing that when that happened, that was huge. For, for end times prophecy, whoa, check this out. Uh, Israel is now their own nation, and now everything is, the table is set for all this stuff that we see in Daniel and the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and 25 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Oh, the table is set now for all this to happen uh, now that uh, Israel is a nation again. But the point is that now he's shifting back to Hebrew. Why? Because the focus of the rest of the book of Daniel is God's future plans for Israel. Okay, so he's done talking about the times of the Gentiles, and now he wants to talk about the future of, of Israel. So he's, now he wants to talk about the end times. And so the chapters that remain, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, uh, reveal the time of intense suffering that Israel will endure before Jesus Christ returns to deliver them and establish his eternal kingdom in Jerusalem, which God promised throughout the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to see here from, from now until the end of the book of Daniel. It's focused on the nation of Israel. Verse 1. In the third year, the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And so Daniel had this second vision two years after his first vision uh, of the four beasts that he recorded in chapter 7. And like his first vision, this vision occurred during the reign of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, about 12 years before the Medes and the Persians joined forces and then conquered Babylon. That, the night when right uh, Belshazzar was partying uh, and brought in the sacred vessels from the temple and, and uh, the writing on the wall um, that, that evening. That's when that went down. This is about 12 years pr prior to that. Now, this vision that Daniel gets here um, parallels the visions that we've already looked at uh, in Daniel. Again, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, dream with the four medals, and J Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel's vision of the four beasts. And this vision, the second vision of Daniel here, and Daniel 8 zeroes in, if you will, on the midsection of the statue vision. So if you have a picture of that statue, and all of a sudden you're going to do kind of a breakout and go, now we're going to zero in and we're going to expand uh, the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. Uh, in the same way, this vision zeroes in on the two middle beasts of the beast vision in chapter 7. So we're going to break that out and expand that. And so basically this prophecy is, is simply about the transition between the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. And so he says, I saw in the vision while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. So in this vision, Daniel was transported to the city of Susa, which is about 250 miles east of Babylon, and uh, he found himself beside the Ulai Canal, which was a 900-foot man-made canal uh, that connected the two main rivers near Susa. Now, why this is an appropriate setting to receive this vision is because um, 
this, this Susa would eventually serve as the capital of the Persian Empire. And so this vision is about the rise and the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so he's going to be uh, seeing all this from their capital, if you will. A <coughs> hundred years later, uh, King Xerxes built a magnificent palace here uh, in Susa, where the events recorded in the book of Esther took place. So we're, we're familiar with Susa because of the book of Esther. And also, this is where Nehemiah would serve as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. So this was a, a key city. Verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, which the longer one coming up last. So we see um, standing alongside the canal, Daniel sees this ram with two long horns. One horn was longer than the other. Uh, the longer the two grew up uh, after the shorter one, and then verse 4 says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So this ram was on a rampage to conquer everyone around him. No one could stop him. He was invincible. Well, let's look now at the interpretation. Jump down to verse 15. When Daniel had seen the vision, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. <coughs> I would say that was the voice of God telling the angel Gabriel to interpret this dream for, for, for Daniel. Um, so here's Gabriel being ordered by God uh, to explain this, this, this vision. Um, by the way, the only other angel that is mentioned by name in the Bible is Michael, who seems to have been specially assigned by God to care for the nation of Israel. We're going to meet him uh, in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12. He's also mentioned in Jude, uh, the book of Jude and the book of Revelation. Um, and so we have Gabriel and Michael playing a key role here in the end uh, of the book of Daniel. Look at verse 17. So he came near to me where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what, I will, what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And so, Again, Daniel here is overwhelmed by fear in the angel's presence. He falls on his face into a deep sleep. It may be that he passed out, um, which, by the way, was a pretty typical response whenever um, someone saw an angel or the angel of the Lord. Uh, that's how John responded in Revelation 1 when he got the uh, apocalyptic vision from the angel. He, he says he fell as a dead man. And so... That was uh, Daniel's response as well. Now, notice the interpretation of this, of this ram. Verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of the Media and Persia. So, I mean, you can't miss what that ram represents. Um, it, it clearly represented the combined powers of the Medo-Persian Empire, which, by the way, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, the army marched under the flag with a ram on that flag. find that interesting. <coughs> of course, the longer horn symbolized that the, the king of the, the Persian Empire was more powerful than the king of the Medes and, and, and overpowered them eventually. Um, we saw that in chapter 7, the bear was raised up on one side, the bear that represented the Medes and the Persians. There was, one was stronger than the other. Um, the Medes and the Persians had a vast army of more than 2 million soldiers who went on a rampage and they extended their empire northwest as far as Asia Minor, as far as Asia Minor, as far south as Egypt. They were the largest empire in the ancient East and enjoyed world domination for 200 years. And again, what are we learning here from the book of Daniel? We, we got to keep going back to the big picture here, right? That our God reigns. And so Daniel and we are serving the king of heaven in a world of pawns. And so we need to remember this, that God ordained the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire to fulfill his purposes for his people, the nation of Israel. 
And in Daniel chapter 1, you remember, we saw how Nebuchadnezzar was sovereignly used by God as a pawn to punish Israel for their rebellion against him by taking them into exile. And it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. So it was the Lord that did this. And in the same way, God sovereignly used the Persian king Cyrus as a pawn to deliver the Jews from exile. So God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring the Jews into exile, and he used Cyrus to bring the Jews out of exile. And uh, I love what Isaiah says, or how Isaiah describes it in, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. In other words, I have raised up Cyrus to be my tool, if you will, my anointed leader to perform all my desire, to do what I want, to declare that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and the temple will be rebuilt as well. And so as you know, Cyrus, uh, uh, the king of the, when when he came to power, uh, he allowed the Jews who were living under his reign at that time to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple and restore their nation. We don't have time to read this, but you might want to write down Ezra chapter 1, (coughs) verses 1 through 11, and Ezra chapter 5, 6, verses chapter 6, verse 5. And I think it's interesting that when when Cyrus decreed that, hey guys, listen, I'm your new king, okay? Babylon's no longer in existence, okay? And whatever they did is what they did, but guess what? I'm a different kind of king, and I want you guys to be able to go back to your homeland, and I want you to rebuild your, your capital city and rebuild your temple. And you can imagine, right, the Jews' draw, jaws drop to the floor. Here's a pagan king telling us to go back and rebuild our temple. But again, this was all the Lord's doing. And I think this is interesting. What Cyrus emphasized here, if you look at the book of Ezra, Uh, he allowed them to take with them the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from their temple in Jerusalem. He said, hey guys, by the way, here's all your vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole from your temple. Here you go, and you can take them all back with you. So cool. And so the point is, our sovereign God used a pagan king to fulfill his purposes for his people. And this brings us back to Daniel chapter 2, when, when, uh, when this is what the Lord says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. Listen, no matter who gets elected, as the next president of the United States. Guess what? He or she, got to say that these days, right? He or she will just be one more in a long line of pawns that God will use to accomplish his sovereign purposes and advance his kingdom. And so instead of freaking out about the upcoming election, saying, guess what? We should be excited because all this means is we are one step closer to Jesus coming back. Amen? And so we see God is the one who removes presidents and he establishes presidents for his purposes, for his wise purposes. And so we see here this, this, um, this, 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 this ram. This ram. What did I call this ram? What kind of ram was he? I forgot. A mighty ram. Yeah, there we go. He's a mighty ram. Now let's look at this mad goat. Okay, this mad goat. Who is this? Back uh, in, in verse 5, Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. In other words, this is a really fast goat. His feet aren't even touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Again, I mentioned this is a unigoat, 
like a unicorn, has one horn. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him coming beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. He was mad. He was a mad goat. Okay, he is ticked off. Um, And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to understand him, so he, to withstand him, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in his place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. So here's Daniel looking at this, this, this um, this ram with these two horns, and all of a sudden this goat comes from the west with this one horn protruding from his forehead. Um, and again, the fact that he wasn't touching the ground means he was flying. He was moving so quickly. And this goat was hacked off at the ram, okay? He, he charged him with great fury. He broke off his horns. He threw him to the ground, stomps all over him, completely overpowers him. And, and it says here in verse 8 that the goat got cocky and exalted himself greatly, and at the height of his power, his horn was broken off. And four smaller horns came up in his place. You say, okay, great, what does that mean? Well, look at the interpretation in verse 21. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So this mad goat represented the nation of Greece who came on this military campaign from the west under the command of none other than Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander the Great was an egomaniac. Uh, his parents had raised him to believe that he was a direct descendant of the Greek god Hercules, and so he was determined to flex his Herculean strength, if you will, by taking over the world. And so Alexander was enraged at the Persians for having defeated the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon and Salamis, which were Greek cities near Athens. And so with this unprecedented speed, (coughs) he conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, uh, Mesopotamia. Again, his feet didn't even touch the ground. That's the point. And so the Persians were were helpless to resist the Greeks, and they were quickly and easily overpowered. Um, If you look at world history, Alexander the Great achieved world dominance in just three short years. That's how quickly he took over the world. And yet, as you may know, he died prematurely at the age of 33 of a fever (coughs) that he possibly um, contracted uh, due to malaria that he caught while conquering India along with complications from alcoholism. He was a heavy drinker. Uh, He had no heirs to succeed him, so when he died, his kingdom was divided between four generals depicted by these four horns. Ptolemy uh, was over Egypt and parts of Asia Minor. Cassander was over Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus was over Thrace and parts of Asia Minor. And then Seleucus was over Sirius Syria, Israel, and Mesopotamia. And years later, another king would rise from that final kingdom, if you will, the Seleucid dynasty, and establish himself as a monstrous ruler who would do unthinkable things. And that leads us to the third image here, and that is the menacing horn, this menacing horn. Look at the vision in verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, uh, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Um, It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Now, we need to not get confused here because this isn't the same little horn that came out of the ten horns of the fourth beast in chapter 7, okay? This is not the Roman Empire. This is the Greek Empire, right? So this is kind of going back here. We're still in the realm of the, of, of the Greek, the kingdom of, of Greece, okay? Um, and even though his name is never mentioned specifically in this passage, most uh, Old Testament scholars agree that this little horn represented a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. You ever heard of that guy? Antiochus Epiphanes? He was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty, uh, again, one of the four powers into which the Greek empire was divided after the death of Alexander the Great. And Antiochus 
reigned between 175 and 163 B.C. And he was one of the cruelest tyrants in the history of mankind. During his murderous reign, he tried to take over the, the other three kingdoms in the Greek Empire, uh, and he became one of the worst enemies Israel has ever known. I think that is what's implied here in verse 10. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. He was a vicious persecutor of the people of Israel. Uh, his diabolic treatment of the Jews rivaled that of Hitler, which we're all familiar with. Notice verse 11, it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's that? God himself, right? It removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Here, just describing the, the, how extremely arrogant Antiochus Epiphanes was. In fact, he was the one who named himself Epiphanes. He was, his name was Antiochus, but he named himself uh, he, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means, quote, the illustrious one. Because he claimed to be a manifestation of the gods. He was an epiphany, if you will. In fact, he had the word theos, which is God in, the, in Greek, printed on Greek coins along with a picture of himself that made him look like the Greek god Zeus. And so this guy was, again, an egomaniac. He was determined to Hellenize everyone under his rule, which means uh, basically to force his subjects to adopt, adopt Greek cultural and religious practices. Um, he especially targeted the Jews and attempted to wipe out the Hebrew religion and convert their temple into a place of pagan worship. Um, just let me list for you some of the things that he was known for. Uh, he attacked and burned Jerusalem, killing thousands. He blasphemed the Lord. He set himself up as Israel's king and compelled the nation to worship him. Rather than God, he claimed the authority and worship that belongs to, to God alone. He actually stopped the sacrificial system and the observance of all the, the Jewish feasts and festivals. He, he outlawed the scriptures. If anyone was caught with a copy of the law of Moses, they would be killed. How about this? He banned circumcision and he would actually kill any babies who were circumcised, and he would hang them around their mother's neck and parade them through the streets. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. And ultimately, what he's most notorious for was desecrating the temple. He replaced the Jewish altar with an idol of Zeus and sacrificed a pig on it and, and just smeared the blood of the pig all over the temple in Jerusalem. This was the greatest affront to Judaism that they could possibly imagine, a, a pig, right? The, 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 the most unclean animal uh, slaughtered in your temple and then the blood smeared all over the place. Talk about becoming unclean, right? And so this is what is known as the abomination of desolation. Uh, we, we're going to learn about that in Daniel chapter 9. It's called that specifically, the abomination of des desolation, chapter 11, chapter 12. We also see it in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Um, look at verses 13 and 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 23 hundred evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So what, is, what that's saying is that this desecration would take place for 2,300 days after which the sanctuary would be cleansed and reconsecrated to its rightful place in the life of Israel. Uh, some take this to mean uh, 23 days, 2,300 days, um, which is a little more than six years, and that would have been from Antiochus's first invasion of Jerusalem in 171 BC uh, until the temple was reclaimed and restored by Judas Maccabees uh, in 165 BC. Others say that each evening and morning may refer to the evening and morning sacrifices, which were interrupted by Antiochus's desecration. There was no sacrifices um, uh, offered, obviously, in that 
desecrated place. Uh, and so with two sacrifices daily, that's 2,300 offerings, would add up to 11, uh, 1,150 days or three years plus 70 days. Again, some, some people say that's how you, the timing of this, this is the time from Antiochus' desecration when it actually happened, December 16th. 167 B.C. to the time when the temple was reclaimed and restored by Judas Maccabees in 165. Which, by the way, the, the Antiochus's blasphemous exploits triggered what's referred to as the Maccabean Revolt. And Jerusalem was eventually delivered through guerrilla warfare led by a man named Judas Maccabees who reclaimed the temple and reconsecrated it to the worship of God on December 25th. 165 B.C., which is when the Jews celebrate what? Hanukkah, or the Feast of Lights. Um, and this, this, was, uh, this is the, the Jewish annual celebration uh, of, of the reclaiming and reconsecrating of their, of their temple and on December 25th when we celebrate Christmas, right? And you know that there's a, a menorah, right, this, this, this candle uh, that they keep lit, and it really represents the candle that stayed miraculously lit for eight days, uh, one uh, candle for each day um, during that Maccabean revolt. Well, you say, what happened to this Antiochus guy? Well, he eventually lost his mind, and he died of a sudden malady similar to that of King Herod in Acts chapter 12. You remember <coughs> King Herod was something happened to him, and he was eaten by worms, and so he was seized with these abdominal pains, and uh, again, likely as a result of worms. And it said that on his deathbed, that Antiochus admitted that what he had done to Israel was wrong, and he begged God to spare his life. I mean, this was his final admission that, that he'd been very foolish to oppose the God of the Hebrews. And it's no wonder that the Jews nicknamed him Antiochus Epimenes. They kind of made fun of him. He wanted, to, he wanted to be known as Antiochus Epiphanes, and they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which meant the madman, because that's indeed what he was. And again, we're going to see this madman again in chapter 11. Now, what is this, what is this um, interpretation of this? Well, just jump to verse 23, okay? Um, in the latter period of their rule... When the transgressors have run their course, a king will rise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an uh, extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people, and through his shrewdness, he will cause the seat to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease, and he will oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. We'll just stop there for a second. So, while this prophecy was literally fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes, this prophecy clearly looks beyond Antiochus to his future counterpart, the Antichrist, who Antiochus was a preview or foretaste. This is the double fulfillment we were talking about. There was a near fulfillment Okay, in, in Antiochus Epiphanes, but there was also a far fulfillment. And Antiochus was a type of the Antichrist, a picture of the Antichrist. Um, he prefigured the Antichrist. Um, he foreshadowed what the Antichrist would do during the end times. And, and so again, you can't help but, but think ahead when you read this, uh, verses 23 through 25, this description of Antiochus Epiphanes, and not also, see, this is a description of the Antichrist. You say, well, what can we learn about the Antichrist? Well, he'll be cunning and proud and deceitful, and he'll subdue under, people under his power by promising them false security. He'll be controlled by someone else, by uh, some supernatural force. He'll be ruthlessly persecuting God's people during the tribulation period. He'll even raise himself up against the Lord Jesus himself. And he'll be destroyed, again, not by human means, um, but by divine intervention. Um, again, this is the return of Christ. Christ will come and destroy uh, the Antichrist. Um, 
Notice verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, Daniel was told here by Gabriel to seal up this vision for what? The future. Now, he didn't tell him to keep it a secret necessarily, or he never would have written it down here uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the point is, it, it refers to many days in the future. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, the time when God's wrath will be poured out on the evil world. That's what he's referring to. And again, just notice Daniel's response here. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Again, this is a good reminder for us this, this, about how we should respond to, to, to this end times prophecy. This was, this was a nightmarish vision for Daniel, and it left him physically and emotionally exhausted. I mean, the thought of, of God's people having to suffer such great tribulation under this little horn, this Antiochus Epiphanes and the future Antichrist made him sick, if you will, so much he couldn't even go to work for days. He had to take sick leave. And so how do we respond? How should we respond to, to this prophecy? That, I mean, is this just to satisfy our curiosity? Cause us to get puffed up because we, we're so knowledgeable about the end times and eschatology and let me tell you and impress you with all my knowledge? Is this purely an academic exercise? It's just a bunch of head knowledge, but it doesn't change your heart. It doesn't create a concern for God's people and a burden for those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I think these should be our, our responses. This should burden our heart. I'm sure that the Maccabees found great comfort and hope during their time of distress under Antiochus by reading the book of Daniel. You ever think about that? That they had the book of Daniel. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought... I thought uh, Antiochus banned the scriptures. I, that's true. But I read somewhere, I thought it was interesting, that copies of Daniel in specific were secretly distributed among the people during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes to encourage them, to comfort them. And again, this is a good reminder for us. Uh, hey, are you going through a difficult time? A time of distress? Well, Daniel 8 encourages us to trust God even when times are difficult. Why? Because he's in control of everything. And as one commentator said here, no matter how hard life gets, no matter how long the tough times last, the Lord God is sovereign. He's in control and he will bring deliverance in his time. He will turn those difficulties into a blessing. That is the kind of God we have and so we need to trust him. Well, just in closing, this was our first introduction to Gabriel, this angel. But this wasn't the last time Gabriel was sent by God to deliver a message. You remember centuries later, he was sent to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist and then later to Mary to announce that she would give birth to the Messiah. And if you remember how how uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, described the coming of Christ. He said it with these words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. So we're learning a lot about horns, right, in the book of Daniel. Well, there's another horn coming. And it's the biggest, baddest horn yet. And, uh, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know, John the Baptist would go on to introduce Jesus Christ, not as a ram, not as a goat, but as a what? A lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in, the, in his vision of the end times, the apostle John saw a lamb seated on the throne. And in Revelation chapter 5, he says this, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, 
And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them as myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Listen, the most important thing to remember today is not that mighty ram or that mad goat, okay, but the murdered lamb, the murdered lamb, who is Jesus Christ, who came to take away the sin of the world. The question is, has he taken away your sin? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this mysterious truth that we've had the privilege of looking into this morning, and so much of it is, 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 is fascinating and really beyond our comprehension, but we thank you for just having Gabriel come to Daniel and clearly interpret it for him so we weren't left wondering what all these things um, are, 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 are meant or depicted here. But Lord, we're, we're, we're thankful, Lord, that, that, that this is not just about goats and, and rams and horns and Lord, this is very practical for our lives today because we are those who have placed our faith and hope in the murdered lamb. And we know the Lord Jesus Christ is your coming, conquering king. And Lord, as we, if we know him, we will be with him and be on his side and we will reign with him forever. And so we can have great hope this morning. I pray that no one would leave here today fearful about the future because their soul is not right with you. And so I pray that you would draw them to the lamb that was slain today. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.